Well, what images come to mind when you think of the word passion? Maybe for some of you, it's uh, it's a basketball coach on the sideline during the NCAA tournament, right? The, the passion kind of uh, maybe upset at the players or celebrating or fans going wild. Maybe for some of you, when you hear the word passion, you think about somebody who's passionate about uh, a hobby or uh, something that they, they love. For some folks, passion is about uh, romance. The dictionary says uh, passion is any great, strong, powerful emotion, especially romantic love or hate. Sometimes it's fervor or determination. But an older meaning of the word passion is suffering. In fact, is our word compassion comes from that root to suffer with. To have compassion is to come alongside and suffer with someone along the way. As we think about this time of the year, we think about uh, Easter, we think about the week leading up to it. Uh, Some have uh, called this Holy Week, has been one of the labels, focuses on the passion of Christ, the, the suffering of Jesus Christ, all of those events from Palm Sunday to gathering in the upper room with the disciples uh, uh, to the, the Garden of Gethsemane to the arrest, to the, the beatings, the crucifixion on Good Friday uh, to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. As we come and reflect and celebrate on all of those uh, events, we wanted to take some time in worship this morning to gather around the bread and the cup, to come together around the, the Lord's Supper. But to do that, it seems appropriate to reflect on the passion of the cross and all that that means, the intentionality, the intention, the fervor that Christ brought to that, the love that Christ brought to that, but also the, the suffering that was a part of that. And the passion uh, perhaps captures all of those different meanings, and they all have application to these moments that we reflect on as we come to the table. Years ago, Oswald Chambers wrote, All of heaven was interested in the cross of Christ. All of hell was terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. That there's something in us that at times can treat the cross, the cross of Christ as just a symbol, a piece of jewelry even, something that we don't even pay as much attention to anymore. And yet it is central. It is central to the activity of God as it relates to you and I. And so what I want to do this morning is spend a few moments reflecting on the passion of the cross. And then we're going to invite all those who are followers of Jesus Christ to take up the bread and the cup with us in remembrance of what he has done for us. To direct our thoughts that way, I want to go to John's Gospel, chapter 19, and I'm just going to read some of the narrative that John, this beloved disciple, recorded about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and, and certainly invite you to follow along, but uh, more than just uh, kind of tracking with words, I, I want to invite you to use a little sanctified imagination this morning. I, I want you to try to put yourself in these moments, in these scenes, to think about what did it 
look like? What did it feel like? What did it smell like when these events were unfolding? I want you to try to spend a moment or two as I read, kind of trying to place yourself there, maybe to get a renewed appreciation for the passion of the cross. The words begin in verse 16. So he, talking about Pilate, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, the passion of the cross and all that it represents. And there are many folks who have many viewpoints on the cross of Jesus Christ. I want us to think this morning about two viewpoints. The first is the eternal viewpoint. The viewpoint from heaven, the viewpoint from uh, the, the Father's perspective. And from the Father's perspective, we see intentionality, we see purpose, we see planning, we see fulfillment. All of these scriptures along the way, from the garment not being torn to the eye thirst to so many others that are recorded in some of the other gospel narratives, all point to the fact that from eternity's viewpoint, this wasn't an accident. This wasn't a out of control. This was not a, a thing that just snowballed and 
got out of hand, but it was according to the purposes of God, and that's what the early church came to fully embrace and understand in Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That this was not an accident. This was the purpose of God. This was the predetermined plan of God from eternity's viewpoint. This was the fullness of time. This was the exact moment that had been established before the foundation of the world in which God would intervene in human history in such a way that it would have ramifications for all eternity. And yet there was not just the eternal viewpoint, but there was and continues to be a human viewpoint. And the human viewpoint can be quite scattered. Paul noted a couple of those views in 1 Corinthians. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And even to this day... Some of those same viewpoints exist. That to the Jews it was inconceivable that the Messiah would, would come and, and allow himself to be treated in this way and would, would hang on a tree. A cursed is one who hangs on a tree. And it just could not be. And to the Jews it, it was just un, unbelievable. It, inconceivable that that could happen that that's what the Messiah would do. To the Greeks, <laughs> this is foolishness. It's another idealist crushed under the power of a political machine. It was the strength of Rome against the folly of an individual. Even today, there are folks who stumble over the cross of Christ. There are those who would look and say it's folly and foolishness to think that something that happened thousands of years ago in a little old spot in the world would have ramifications for my life today in the 21st century could impact all of eternity and yet from God's viewpoint that's exactly what it was there are lots of viewpoints of the cross but as we think about the passion of the cross, we have to think about the pain of the cross, the suffering of the cross, and some of it perhaps more evident than others. There was the social pain that accompanied the cross. I mean, think about this for a moment, that Jesus who had come and, and given his life, Jesus who had this incredible heart of, of love toward these people, Jesus who had invested so intentionally and so intensely in the lives of, of, of a dozen men to have one who would betray him, who would lead people to him to be arrested. To have others who, in his moment of greatest need, couldn't even stay awake and pray with him for one hour. To see follower after follower desert him when the mob showed up. To know 
the one who was boldest in his proclamation of I'll never desert you would deny him three times before the evening would be done. The social pain of rejection. Maybe it's a pain that you've experienced on some level along the way. But it was not just the social pain, but certainly the cross was also about a physical pain. We won't take the time this morning to recount it all, which you can imagine, right? The agony of crying out in prayer, just being emotionally, physically drained, so intense that, that blood was mingled with the sweat that was coming through the pores. And then to be uh, arrested and perhaps bound and dragged along the way and shuffled from place to place and being mocked and ridiculed, having your face slapped, a crown of thorns being forced into your head and the blood would begin to flow. You know how a scalp wound always, always lets the blood flow. And then the beatings, the scourging. Just ripped open, not just skin, but muscle just in you. And the robe and the cross, a beam along the back, and to carry it through a, on a back that had been ripped apart. The blood loss so that he stumbled along the way. And then spikes driven through the extremities. And then the physical toil of having to push up just to be able to breathe. And hours on the cross. Yes, when we think about the passion, we think about the physical pain. But when Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cried out if it's possible for this hour to pass, It wasn't just about a a social pain. It wasn't just about a a physical pain as, as, as horrific as that was. But more than that, Jesus knew the reality of what he was facing was going to be a spiritual pain. A spiritual pain that would be far, far greater than any social pain or physical pain that he was going to have to endure. It was this, the, the pain of having the, the full wrath, the righteous wrath, the righteous judgment of a holy God against sin poured out fully upon him. It was this wrath that would be poured out in such a way that, that Jesus would experience that, that separation from the Father that he had never known in all of eternity. That is why at that crucial moment, Matthew records for us those, those words that he uttered from the cross with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking up the words of Scripture, the pain of carrying the full weight of the wrath of God poured out upon him. Oh, as you think about the cross, if we're going to think about it rightly, we have to think about it not only in its the viewpoints of eternity and human, but the viewpoint of the physical pain, the spiritual pain, the social pain, 
of the cross. But behind all of that pain was a purpose. And as we think about taking up the bread and the the cup, we reflect on the purpose of the cross. The purpose had to do with payment. It was a a payment that was being made. In this, John would later write, is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is a a word we don't commonly use in our our everyday conversations, but it's a word rich in meaning. The the essence of it is a a payment, a payment that was made, a payment that would, would appear He's the the wrath of God that would uh, fulfill the payment that was due. And so in the John's gospel account that we read in just a few moments ago, he he cries out, it is finished. Using that that word would have been stamped across a a bill that had been paid. The debt has been settled. No longer are you, you in debt, but it has been fully and completely paid. And that's what Jesus did. That's why the the old hymn writer uh, said, and many of you perhaps grew up singing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. The cross was about a a payment. The payment that was due because of my rebellion and your rebellion. Because of my sin and your sin. Because of us choosing our way rather than God's way. And this debt that was incurred that I could have never paid in a thousand lifetimes. Jesus paid it it all. The cross had the purpose of payment, but not only payment, but it was also proof. It was proof of the gracious, extravagant love of God for each of us. Paul would write to the Romans, Paul who was so captured and captivated by the love of God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were getting our act together. Not while we were, were doing pretty good on our own. But while we were still sinners, while we were in a state of rebellion, while we were enemies of God, as, as he would write in other places, in that moment, God in love acted. He acted on our behalf, and Christ died for us. We've said it so many times, but let's say it again in this season. It's as if uh, God was asked, how much do you love them? And Jesus spread out his arms on the cross and said, this much. I love them this much. It is proof of his love. Whenever I doubt his love, I run back to the cross. And at the cross, I am reminded of that powerful proof of his love. It was payment. It was proof. But it's also power. The purpose of, of the cross was, was a power, a power for God to do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. That's why Paul would write to the Romans, the, those who were at the, the seat of, of all power uh, that seemed to be at work in the world, at least that section of the world, the Roman power. But he talked about the ultimate power where he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
to the Jew who gets past his stumbling, his offense, to the, 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 the Greek who moves past his, his folly and foolishness, to all of them, that gospel is the same. It is the power of God. It is that which can transform my now and my forever. It is that which gives me the victory over sin. It's that which has set me free from uh, the captivity to sin. It is that which can break the power of habits in my life. It is that which allows me to come before God in prayer that we've been focusing on and celebrating over a 40 days of prayer journey. It is the power of God that rescues me and saves me from my sin and secures a forever with him in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed. Oh yes, there are people who will say it's foolish. Yes, there are people who will be offended by it and it's a stumbling block, but it is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, according to the predetermined plan of God, he was going to prove his love by making payment for our sin and in so doing, unleash the power that could set us free. Free to be restored to a relationship with him. Free to be the people that he designed and created us to be. And so as I think about the viewpoints of the cross, as I think about the pain of the cross, as I think about the purpose of the cross, it, it kind of begs the question this morning, what, what is my response to be? What is our response to the passion of the cross? And while we could make this list tremendously huge, let me just give you four thoughts that I hope will serve us well as we move toward the bread and the cup in a few moments. How do I respond to the cross? Well, the foundational response is to repent and believe. To repent and believe. The proclamation of the early church was along those lines. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets they preached, that his Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, in light of what he did, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What is the foundational response to the cross of Jesus Christ in recognition of what God's done? I turn. I turn away from a self-directed life. I turn away from my sin, and I turn toward Jesus Christ. I toward him and trust, trusting him to not only be the forgiver of my sin, but the rightful leader and Lord of my life. I turn to him in in trust, in complete dependence along the way. And here is our, our prayer as we gather week by week by week. Here is our prayer on this Palm Sunday with, with Good Friday and Easter Sunday coming around the bend, that you would know, that you would know personally the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you would open your life to it, not by being more religious, not by trying to be more moral, but by repentance and faith and belief. And our our offer to you today is simply this. If, If there's any question around that for you this morning, if you're not maybe crystal clear even on what I'm talking about, then before you leave this room, we implore you, 
would you take a few moments and have a conversation with someone? And we've set aside an area in the back of our worship space. There's a <laughs> banner there that says connect. And at the end of our, our service today, there's going to be some folks that are just going to be there hanging out to be available to you. And it would be their privilege to sit down with you for a few moments and unpack a little more clearly what it means to turn and trust, to repent and to believe, to experience the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in your life. That tugging that you feel at your heart, the, the questionings that are racing through your mind, is the Holy Spirit tugging at you, the Holy Spirit calling you to repent and to believe. It is the foundational response to the passion of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray that if it has never been your response, that it would be your response to him today. Out of that platform, there are other continuing responses that we continue to live out by his power and by his grace. And among those are to love God. To love God. When I become captured and captivated like Paul was by the the incredible love of God, I am compelled to return that love. That's why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he didn't hesitate. He, He knew exactly what it was. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, that as we are are overwhelmed by the love of God, we find a, a growing love for God responding in us. That's why John, who wrote not only this gospel, but some letters that we have in the New Testament, said, we love because he first loved us. It's not that I love God and he loved me back. No, no, no. It's that God reached out to me. He created me in love. He, he reached out to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ in love. And my response back is to love. I love because I have first been loved. I have a capacity to love other people because I have been radically loved by God. And so the response to the passion of of the cross is to have a passionate love toward God and a compassionate love toward other people. And so I respond in a love, in a love toward God. But here's the flip side of that. Because I understand the cross, I not only have a powerful love for God, but I hate sin. I have a hatred for sin. Paul would write to the Romans, let love be genuine. Then, interestingly, he describes a part of genuine love. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Why is is abhorring evil and hating sin part of a response to the cross? Because we begin to grasp. We begin to understand not only on a head level but a heart level what what it is that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And we begin to see every sin. It's not just a wink, wink, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. and It's not that big a thing and everybody does it. But we understand it it is rebellion against God. 
God. It is rebellion against his love. It, it is an affront to his holiness that my sin sent him to the cross. And the more that I understand that, the more I begin to abhor what is evil. But not only for what it did to Christ, but what it does to me. What it does to people that I love and care about. I mean, sin destroys. Sin tears apart. Sin promises and betrays. Sin dangles the pleasure and minimizes the pain, the payment. And sometimes, you know, we get a reputation as a church of this is, we're against things. The only reason I would ever be against something is because we're for something. We're for people. We're for God. I want to be more and more. I pray, God, help me to hate those things that dishonor you. God, more and more, help me to hate those things that destroy people. If you love God and love people, why wouldn't you hate things? I mean, a love that doesn't hate is not much of a love, right? I mean, what parent doesn't hate some things? They they don't want that to be a part of the life of their children. They hate it because they know what it would do. They're not going to say, wink, wink. They're not going to say it's not a big deal. It destroys. It damages. Of course I'm going to hate it. The more I recognize what Christ did on the cross, overwhelmed by his love, and out of that love, I'm going to hate. I'm going to hate those things that dishonor God and destroy and damage people. It's not about hating people. It's not about holding up hateful signs. It's not about uh, attacking people. It's, it's, it's hating things that destroy people and dishonor God. We respond to the cross appropriately when we love God. And out of a love for God and a love for people, we hate sin. But let me suggest one more this morning before we take the bread and the cup. We respond appropriately to the cross when we tell others, when we tell others, when we tell others this good news, when we tell others of what has transformed our life, when we tell others about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul talked about the the calling that we have, the ministry that we've been entrusted as a follower of Jesus Christ. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, to us. Sometimes I wonder, why did you entrust it to us? Entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Because we have been entrusted. We are ambassadors for Christ. The question if you're a follower of Christ is not are you our ambassador or are you not. It's only what kind of one are you. Do you represent him well or do you represent him poorly? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled 
to God. That is our plea to you this morning, that you would be reconciled to God. And yet it is not just for a a few moments on a Sunday morning in a room like this, but it is is to be the message of our life. We are to be gossipers of the gospel. We are to be carriers of that that gospel seed to plant it and to water it in people's lives. And, And at times God allows us to be there when it comes to fruition and to see the harvest. But we are to be carriers of that, not because we're superior, because we're not. But we are, in the the words of uh, someone years and years ago, we are one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The response to the cross, the same love that placed Jesus Christ on the cross, Paul said, that love compels us. It compels us. If you know the cure to the disease... Why wouldn't you keep it in your fridge and and not share it with those you love who have the disease? You wouldn't do that. And so we have this gospel. We have this good news. And part of taking the bread and the cup is evaluating how am I responding to the purposes of the cross? How am I responding to the the pain of the cross? How am I responding to God's viewpoint and understanding of the cross? For the past couple of years, whenever we've come toward a communion service, the words of Isaac Watts, famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, just begins to kind of run through my mind as I'm preparing a message, as I'm thinking about taking it. And the last lines of that hymn, which incidentally were written in preparation for a communion service, are these. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Here's my favorite line. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. As we prepare to take the bread and the cup this morning, I'm just going to ask you to reflect. How are you responding to the passion of the cross? That love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He calls me to be all in and to go all out in light of what he has done for me. How are you responding to the passion of the cross? Let's bow our heads together, please. Oh, Father. How we thank you for this time of the year, for all that it represents, for all that it brings to mind. Father, we thank you in your wisdom. You gave to us symbols of a bread and a cup that would sustain throughout the centuries. Simple symbols that remind us of an eternal reality. 
And Father, I just even pray today that in these moments that we have yet remaining, Lord, that that, that you through your gracious spirit would just bring us back. Bring us back to the foundation. Bring us back to the the purpose of the cross. Bring us back to the the love and the passion that motivated it. Bring us back, Father, to to how we're responding to the greatness of your love, the greatness of your intervention through the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray today that your spirit would, would just graciously deal with every one of us here. Father, for those that, that they don't know you, Father, I pray that today your spirit would implore them to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That today, can't think of a better time than the Easter season, today they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who have that foundation in place, that you would stir in us a passionate love for God and a love for others a holy hatred of sin and a compelling desire to gossip the gospel. And as the music plays, I'm just going to invite you to take just a couple of moments now to sit before the Lord.